0: I've tried to encapsulate this idea of the new vision for a world order under this this formulation that it's a partial, loose and malleable form of hegemony.
1: This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. I'm Rachel Bernstein from the Political and Security Affairs team at the National Bureau of Asian Research. In this episode of Asia Insight, we're going to explore China's vision for a new regional and global order and look at how this vision is coming alive around the world. Today's episode is based on the research findings of a project led by NBR over the last two years with the generous support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The full reports can be accessed on our website at www.nbr.org. In the early 1990s, following the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, Deng Xiaoping famously declared that China should hide its capabilities and bide its time and never take the lead. This strategy, commonly known as Tao Guang Yang hui, would allow China room for its own development and avoid conflict with the United States, which, because of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, was now perceived as China's most prominent threat. Heeding to the Guang Yanghui philosophy, China focused on the development of its national power in all dimensions, economic, political, cultural, and military, and slowly took steps to gain prominence in the international global order by joining multilateral organizations. Right after its accession to the World Trade Organization in 2001, China began to move away from Deng's hide-and-bide strategy, but both the leadership's rhetoric and its behavior on the global stage remained prudent. Around 2003, under Hu Jintao, the terms peaceful rise, peaceful development, and harmonious world started to appear in the official rhetoric, China wanted to depict itself both as a rising power and as a country committed to rising peacefully, without disrupting the world order. However, since Xi Jinping came to power in late 2012, he has overseen dramatic shifts in China's domestic, economic, and foreign policy. Most notably in foreign policy, he has come the furthest from Deng's low-profile advice, insisting instead, as he did in 2017 at the 19th Party Congress, on opening a new era that sees China moving closer to center stage and making greater contributions to mankind. In particular, Xi has stated that China will participate in leading the reform of the global governance system. But other than the oft-repeated allusions of the need to foster a new type of international relations, or to build a community of shared future. The Chinese leadership has not been explicit in describing what it would like to see emerge in place of the existing architecture and norms. What types of mechanisms, institutions, norms, and rules would Beijing want to see established as part of a new international system that it would take the lead in shaping? What is China's vision for a new world order under its helm? In 2018, NBR senior fellow Nadej Roland set out to examine these questions and decipher what China's vision for a new world order
0: is. So the, the idea behind this project was to take a look at how the Chinese intellectual and political elites are thinking about their own place in the world, their own role in the world, and the kind of new world order that they would want to bring about and maybe shape and maybe create. Instead of waiting for this new world order to emerge and to happen as a result of the rise of China, trying to understand how these elites think about it. As
1: Nadezh dug into these internal discussions, she found there was a wealth of material in Chinese resources, articles, and op-eds being published by scholars, thinkers, and theorists discussing how China might alter the existing global architecture to better fit its values and interests.
0: It's an interesting mix of projection into the future, but also going back into the mostly imperial past to see whether there are ways things from the past that they can learn that could be applicable in the future. And of course, when we we think about China's empire or or imperial history, uh, the first characteristic that comes to mind is uh, the tributary system, which for uh, centuries has prevailed in, in East Asia, where you had China as the predominant regional power in a system of tributes and vassal states that were leaning towards China or looking up to China culturally and diplomatically and also for security reasons.
1: Even though the Chinese political leadership and intellectual elites look back at China's past as a preponderant power with interests and perhaps envy, there are limits to how this past model can be replicated today. First of all, China is no longer an empire, and the CCP's identity is based on a virulent rejection of imperialism and hegemonism. In order to grasp the party's aspirations for a new world order, one needs to start with a better understanding of the Chinese leadership's worldview and of its system of beliefs. The CCP today is a fundamentally different party than when it was founded in 1921. It is no longer a revolutionary party, and has incrementally moved away from Marxism as its core ideological tenet. There are not many references to class struggle in today's official rhetoric, for example. While the CCP may have shed its Marxist veneer, the party is still certainly Leninist. Power remains of paramount importance. Leninism also informs the CCP's efforts to put up a united front against its perceived enemies there are elements of this ancient tributary system, or Tianxia, that align nicely with the Leninist nature of the CCP.
0: This is the crux of of this alignment, if you will, that power, whether it's uh, seen through a Leninist prism or through a Tianxia prism, it's the essential component of it. China needs to be, has to be the most important, the most powerful, on the top and at the center. And this is where it's, uh, the, the, two, the two thoughts are clearly reconciled.
1: If a full recreation of the ancient tributary system is hardly possible within the 21st century with the CCP, rather than a Confucian emperor leading China, what does a Chinese-led world order look like?
0: I've tried to encapsulate this idea of the new vision for a world order under this this formulation that it's a partial, loose, and malleable form of hegemony. It's something that is different from any model or any historical model that we have uh, in mind. It's something original that fits with China's conditions, with China's situation, uh, with China's uh, traditions and with the with the leadership, the party's uh, worldview, partial because it's not global. China doesn't necessarily want to rule the world. Uh, it's not regional either because it's not specifically focused on China's neighbors in Asia. But it goes across boundaries. It goes. It's mostly focused on. Uh, the developing and emerging world, Uh, the mental map that has been uh, drawn by the Belt and Road Initiative, that Eurasian landmass spreading all the way to Africa through uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Central Asia. So it's partial, but not completely regional and not global either. It's in between. Loose because the degree of control that China seems to, or that these intellectual elites seem to always refer to, is not control that is created through invasion or military coercion necessarily. It's looser than this. Um, it's not invasions. It's not conquest, territorial conquest, and it's not necessarily replacing uh, local political order or local political figure by a Chinese representative, uh, like in, for example, European colonial eras, the degree of control might be looser. And we can already see it happening today because, for example, of China's economic power leverage and that the use of this leverage both as carrots and sticks it can be attractive for countries to continue to engage with china for economic um, and trade reasons but also you can see more and more examples of economic coercion uh, used by beijing to achieve its objectives uh, in certain uh, areas and with certain countries so a loose form of of control and finally malleable because there too, the, uh, the, the the delineations of of this hegemony are not necessarily like other historical examples of orders that were either geographically focused or ideologically focused. I think that um, Beijing would be content with including in this um, order democracies. Authoritarian countries in transition countries, uh, without really any uh, any problem with any of that, as long as they accept and um, respect uh, China's interests. And it's not it's not fixed. Apparently, it can be you know you belong at one point, and then if you don't agree anymore with China's interests or defer to to China then you don't belong anymore, and that's fine, you know, it's not, it's not rigid.
1: To determine whether or not this vision of a loose, partial, and malleable hegemony is becoming reality, the next step is to examine China's interactions in the current global system. In order to do so, we asked experts to focus on seven case studies and assess China's actions across a series of norms, institutions, domains, and countries. Some of the norms and institutions that China is attempting to reshape are part of the existing international order, such as the United Nations Human Rights Council, while others are China-led or created, such as the 17 plus 1 platform in Central and Eastern Europe. China is also actively promoting its preferred norms, such as the right to development and cyber sovereignty. China's diplomacy with other countries also sheds light on its objectives and ambitions, By choosing Cambodia, a country with a deep relationship with China, and South Korea, a U.S. ally, we were able to compare the objectives and instruments used in order to gain a fuller picture of China's diplomatic practice. In each of the seven case studies, we found elements of China's vision for a Sinocentric order, and although the contours of this system are blurry, there are clear discernible elements of the ancient Tianxia system that fall in line with the theory of a loose, partial, and malleable hegemony. In developing this form of hegemony in which power plays a central role, Beijing has already begun to display its preference for hierarchy and asymmetry rather than sovereign equality in a Sinocentric system. This has become particularly clear in China's development of new international organizations in which China plays a central role, such as the 17 plus 1 platform.
2: Because it is a kind of an umbrella over seventeen bilateral dialogues that China has with Central and Eastern European countries. And to be honest, the seventeen plus one is based on bilateralism. It's a forum for pursuing bilateral
1: bilateral ties and it has China centric character. That was Justina Stuze head of the Asia-Pacific Program and China analyst at the Polish Institute of International Affairs. In this forum, China is the dominant player and the central hub to which all other states are connected like spokes. Within the 17 plus 1, China has set the agenda, defined the rules. The 17 plus 1 secretariat is hosted within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing. Instead of a power balance in the relationship, similar to what would be observable in existing multilateral institutions, Central and Eastern European countries are reacting to China's proposals rather than working together toward a coordinated compromise and consensus. China's preferred position at the top and center of this new world order can also be seen in its relations with its neighbors. Since Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, as Adam Cathcart, lecturer in Chinese history at the University of Leeds describes,
3: uh, we've seen the growth in China's kind of uh, or the uh, peripheral diplomacy diplomacy around relations around China's periphery in its neighborhood, so to speak. Um, and South Korea has, of course, gotten wrapped up uh, in that discourse.
1: The emphasis on peripheral diplomacy throughout Xi Jinping's tenure also indicates a desired hierarchy between China and its neighbors. With regards to South Korea,
3: so one of the things that they want to see is, at the very least, a minimal kind of a status quo uh, with, the, with South Korea's uh, military relationship with the United States, where it is not uh, growing, where troop numbers are not growing, where technology is not growing, uh, particularly missile defense.
1: While American military presence in South Korea has traditionally been a source of tension in Sino-South Korean relations and viewed as a threat to China's rise and development, the bilateral relationship between South Korea and China has shifted in
3: recent years The structure of the of the relationship has accordingly gone from overtly antagonistic and overtly seeking to contain uh, American power on South Korea to a somewhat more ambiguous and and uh, multi fronted uh, multi multifaceted rather struggle, which uh, has, of course, economic components, strategic components, and uh, military components and cultural components.
1: This change to a more complex relationship highlights China's changing ambitions with regards to its relations with neighbors. China's desired regional hierarchy is also apparent in its relations with Cambodia, as journalist Chris Horton explores in his chapter. Over the last decade, China's engagement with Cambodia has thrived. China is Cambodia's largest trading partner and diplomatically, no other country is as engaged with Cambodia as China. This engagement with and investment in Cambodia is rooted in the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI, an ambitious infrastructure building project which aims at connecting various regions across Eurasia and beyond with China at the center. Chinese theorists consider BRI as the backbone of the new world order that Beijing would like to see emerge. More than just an infrastructure development initiative, BRI offers multiple opportunities to promote China's preferred norms and values. For instance, with the notion of cyber sovereignty, the idea that every state should have the right to regulate the Internet the way it deems necessary, According to Adam Siegel, director of the Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations, although there is not a lot of direct promotion of the cyber sovereignty norm through the digital Silk Road, the BRI's cyber component, there is indirect promotion through engagement and training.
4: So primarily the BRI, uh, it's through training and and the export of technology uh, and having Chinese tech firms like Huawei and others on, on the ground there.
1: In addition to using the BRI as a vector for the promotion of the cyber sovereignty norm, Adam Siegel observes that other mechanisms are also important, such as...
4: And through groups like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization where China talks about cyber sovereignty. And then uh, through training, so by bringing uh, officials from developing countries uh, to China to show how the internet is uh, regulated,
1: China's increased influence over countries that are part of the BRI already has some notable effects on the existing international system and its norms and values.
5: There's often substantial overlap between countries that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative and affirmative votes on China's resolutions and signatures on its statements supporting its, quote, counterterrorism and deradicalization policies, end quotes, in Xinjiang and Beijing's policies with respect to Hong Kong.
1: That was Andrea Warden, lecturer in the Program for East Asian Studies at the Johns Hopkins Krieger
5: School of Arts and Sciences. She continues. Synergies between the Belt and Road Initiative, the right to development, and the U.N.'s 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development are being pushed by China and officials at the U.N. In this way, the BRI is gradually being framed as a vehicle for and, an, and enabler of human rights with the end goal, of course, being the community of shared future for humankind.
1: The community of a shared future for humankind, sometimes translated as community of common destiny, encapsulates China's vision of a Sinocentric order and a loose, partial, and malleable hegemony. Building a community of shared future for humankind is the main objective. BRI is China's main instrument to achieve this goal. BRI is used as a connector to the developing and non-Western world, the areas in which China is attempting to forge this new international order. For example, China includes Central and Eastern European countries as part of the BRI. Although the 17 Plus One platform was founded a year before BRI, Dr. Studlick highlights that it has since been subsumed under the BRI umbrella and now serves as Beijing's main strategic avenue for developing economic relations and promoting its preferred norms and values in a region it perceives as outside the Western-centric order. China
2: thought that C countries could be perceived as a brand in China's anti-Western approach, because we are perceived as a former socialist fellow, we were in a, a socialist camp during the Cold War, we are not perceived as a power um, that um, occupied China, we are victims of colonization because of uh, being in the socialist camp. So in that sense, we could be to some extent perceived as uh, those countries which are developing ones and do not fully integrate it with the West.
1: In other words, Central and Eastern European countries are considered as potential partners in opposing a Western-centric order and establishing instead a China-centric order. With a better sense of China's objectives, we turn to its preferred instruments and tactics in support of the creation of this new world order. First, China attempts to promote its preferred norms and influence domains in the existing international order to shape the current system to better fit its interests and reflect its worldview.
4: China began to push this vision of cyber sovereignty that Uh, Every state should have the right to regulate the Internet uh, any way that it uh, deems necessary uh, and that it shouldn't be criticized for how it regulates the Internet um, because it felt uh, as if um, the United States and its allies were building alliances uh, and promoting a vision uh, of the Internet that uh, really threatened Chinese national security.
1: That was Adam Siegel again. The notion of cyber sovereignty benefits China domestically as well as internationally because cyber sovereignty helps accommodate Beijing's ambitions for power while assuaging its anxieties about political survival. Tightly controlling the internet is essential for the party to ensure domestic stability, maintain legitimacy, and uphold power. Promoting this norm internationally is an essential component of this quest. China's influence on norms and institutions extends further than cyber sovereignty. Alizé Pornet, an analyst from the French Development Agency, depicts China's influence on the international development finance system.
6: I would say that actually uh, China is engaging with the development finance system by trying to
1: add Chinese characteristics to existing standards. China engages with several multilateral actors to integrate its development finance initiatives and norms into the existing order.
6: You have six uh, big institutions development finance that signed uh, an agreement under the first BRI forum um, committing to work with China under the Belt Initiative.
1: China also responds to criticisms from the international community and adjusts.
6: So you have the other way. Uh, which is that BRI is trying to adapt. For example, uh, since the second BRI forum, China tries to have shifts toward sustainability and environment.
1: China's aim in development finance is to become a structural actor within the existing development finance system by developing new actors, such as the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, and new tactics that would offset the current Western advantage. Similar to cyber-sovereignty, this strategy is designed to shape a world order that better fits the Chinese leadership's views and interests. The second instrument China uses to form this new Sinocentric system is presenting itself as a leader of the emerging and developing world and as an alternative to the U.S.-led liberal order. Beijing is making a concerted effort to build coalitions within the emerging and developing world, that can help support China's vision. To discuss how China presents itself as a leader for the developing world in the development finance domain, we turn to Alizé Pornay again.
6: Um, it is also atypical because China depicts itself as an alternative from the Bretton Woods system of aid um, that is sometimes framed under uh, what we call the Washington Consensus. Um, the Beijing consensus, by contrast with the Washington consensus, uh, would not, for example, have a precise meaning, but um, would um, underline the China's pragmatic institution-oriented approach. And uh, it also pushes for better representation of both China and emerging countries in multilateral institutions.
1: China simultaneously presents itself as a responsible global actor and as an atypical actor that is able to provide aid according to its own guidelines and preferences. By doing so, Beijing attempts to position itself as a leader in the global order, one that can not only represent itself and promote its national interests, but also represent other emerging and developing countries. The rise of the rest with China as the leader. Justina Strudlich highlights this within the context of the 17-plus-1. Then
2: we have uh, political and normative uh, goals or objectives, but those goals became apparent later on since Xi Jinping's term. Um, We are talking about these goals. We can see that China is trying to project its active diplomacy in countries, diversify its diplomatic portfolio, Uh, to create some kind of political friends or circle of political friends that are not fully integrated with the West or less developed, to give credence uh, to the PRC's new diplomatic activities, for example, um, to highlight China's
1: agenda setting power instead of, let's say, being a non-follower. China's agenda setting in the 17 plus 1 illustrates its attempt to position itself as a leader of developing and emerging countries outside of the current international system. This also rings true at the United Nations, one of the most prominent institutions where China has been increasingly proactive in promoting its norms and values within the existing architecture. Malin Ode, director of the China program at the Stockholm-based Raoul Wallenberg Institute, examines China's actions at the United Nations, in particular with regard to its promotion of the right to development as an alternative concept to human rights as
7: currently defined by the UN Charter. So before 2008, China was mainly defensive and and reactive in relation to human rights at the UN. Uh, But since 2008, and particularly under uh, Xi Jinping, China's employed a much more proactive strategy promoting the right to development, but also uh, Xi Jinping's concept of a common destiny or shared future at the UN, and similar to the right to development, uh, these concepts, these Chinese concept, the concepts of, of common destiny and, and win-win cooperation on human rights are they concepts that sees human rights as more as uh, the rights of, of states than the rights of, of individuals in relation to, to governments. Uh, so, so China's advancing of, of the concept of the right to development also helps position China as a developing country in the global south, challenging the, the so-called hegemony of the global north. So, so that's also an, an effective way of positioning China as a leader of the developing world at the UN uh, and helps China to mobilize uh, like-minded countries at the UN.
1: Andrea Warden builds on this insight.
5: Given China's influence both at the UN and specifically at the, human, at the UN Human Rights Council, it is able to marshal votes for resolutions it proposes and its other initiatives such as collecting signatures on statements in support of its policies in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. The Chinese government has positioned itself as the leader and spokes country, for lack of a better word, of the Global South at the Human Rights Council and uses its bully toolkit, including economic coercion and leverage, threats and intimidation to advance its agenda at the HRC. In addition to successfully
1: marshalling votes at the UN Human Rights Council, China furthers its image as a leader of the developing world through forums such as the South-South Human Rights Forum, a meeting in Beijing designed to build consensus on China's preferred version of human rights among developing countries. In her chapter, Malin Ode argues that the main objective of this forum is to spread a positive image of China among a wide variety of foreign stakeholders. The forum targets developing countries, but is also legitimized by the attendance of Western democracies, further boosting China's image as a leader within the developing world. The third instrument China uses to forge a new world order is providing a wide array of political, economic, and security benefits to countries that join its new sinocentric order. In the case of Cambodia, close association with China has legitimized the rule of Cambodian leader Hun Sun, providing him with shelter from international criticism as he clamps down on human rights and crushes political opposition in Cambodia. This mutually beneficial relationship between China and Cambodia gives Beijing increased leverage over other international institutions such as the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, where China can now count on Cambodia to promote Beijing's interests and vote in accordance with Beijing's opinion. While China uses benefits and inducements in some cases, it is also able to turn these benefits into coercive instruments. As Adam Cathcart depicts in his essay, Beijing has become much more willing to respond assertively when its political or security red lines are crossed. However, China projects itself as a peaceful, rising power and is thus unlikely to use military force to respond to non compliance.
3: So, the term you might use is weaponization of trade. To what extent is China willing to essentially barter or walk back or slow down uh, some of its economic exchanges with South Korea in exchange for putting pain? On the South Korean uh, polity, on the, on the on the government in Seoul, on the Blue House or the executive branch uh, in Seoul,
1: Beijing has used this tactic several times in South Korea. Most recently, in the case of the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense or THAAD missile crisis, in which China felt threatened by the U.S.'s placement of a missile system so close to its borders.
3: To the extent that certain companies, such as Lotte, which had a large number of department stores in China, and uh, put, put a lot of money and put, made a big play into the Chinese market uh, where they were effectively boycotted on the Chinese mainland.
1: China's boycott over latte lasted several years and inflicted economic damage on South Korea. While the THAAD missiles may still be deployed in South Korea, China has made it very clear that it will not hesitate to push back when it feels threatened. It is evident throughout these case studies that China has achieved a varying degree of success when it comes to bringing its loose, partial and malleable hegemony to life. In his chapter devoted to Cambodia, Chris Horton concluded that China is able to wield a large degree of power, effectively forming a hierarchical relationship in which it is able to achieve desired outcomes. However, in the case of South Korea, Adam Cathcart notes that this process has not been nearly as seamless. South Korea has attempted to take the middle ground the government has welcomed increased economic engagement with China, but has not fully turned away from its security engagements with the United States. In the development finance domain, Alize Pornet highlights that China is on the path toward becoming a structural actor.
6: Uh, China has recently surpassed the World Bank and the IMF as leading creditor for developing countries. Even though it's very difficult for um, analysts to have a broad picture of uh, all the financial flows that China is implementing. But these flows is uh, the main illustration of how China is becoming a structural factor for a development system.
1: With regards to human rights, Malin Ode and Andrea Worden observe that China has made significant strides that have been exacerbated by the U.S. withdrawal from the U.N. Human Rights Council and weakened international leadership as a whole. Cyber sovereignty has also gained traction in recent years, and although China benefits from this, Adam Siegel underlines that it is not entirely its own doing.
4: I think part of this um, move towards a less open internet, though, is not a not necessarily the outcome of any Chinese diplomacy or Chinese uh, impact, uh, in, in attempts to um, promote cyber sovereignty, as opposed to a wide, a widening disillusionment in the West and other places with the with a completely free and completely open internet.
1: When it comes to the 17 plus one, Justina Studlick observes that despite the fact that many Central and Eastern European countries would prefer investments from the European Union rather than from China, Beijing has still obtained a relative degree of success.
2: More results, positive results for China are at the political dimension. Uh, what I mean about these uh, positive results is the fact that the format still exists. It's Channel at Formula. It still exists. It functions pretty well because um, we um, there. There was a first enlargement of the formula in April twenty nineteen, and the the formula was uh, from because at the beginning it was sixteen plus one. Now we have seventeen plus one because in Greece last year became a member. So. It is also promoted by Chinese experts that uh, the format is very useful because now it's bigger and the influence of this formula is rising, global influence.
1: This all being said, whether or not China has been successful in all of its endeavors to create a new and regional global order is not the most important takeaway. Instead, what is more critical is understanding the vision as a whole and where it stems from there may be a gap between Beijing's vision and the current reality, especially as outside observers may not be able to see what the ultimate objectives are from the beginning.
0: China didn't come to Cambodia saying we want access to a naval base because this is not the way China does diplomacy, right? So they first need to build a long-term presence that is mostly based on the win-win or the supposed benefits that you can take out of the relationship, specifically through economic and and trade relations, then expanding outwards with uh, higher education, uh, science and technology cooperation, media cooperation, uh, financial cooperation and others. And then eventually down the line, maybe getting to the heart of the matter.
1: That was Nadej Ruland again. Leaders in the People's Republic of China have had consistent and clear goals to bring about the national rejuvenation and for the country to take what they consider as its rightful place in the world. The methods for achieving these goals may have differed, but its leaders have had an increasingly clear vision for a new world order under China's
0: helm. And so that's why it's so important to try to understand it from the start, before it's completely fulfilled, um, so that we, we can be better prepared and, and, and understanding better instead of waiting 20 or 30 years down the line for, for it to happen. Because then we can perhaps shape China's vision in a certain direction. And perhaps we can make choices and make decisions on our own that benefit us. And when I say us, it's each country that is supposed to be part of this partial and malleable system to see how we can maybe shape or counter-shape this vision. Uh, I think this is really important.
1: For a deeper understanding of the ins and outs of China's vision for a new world order, download the full reports at www.nbr.org.
2: This podcast was produced by Ian Smith. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bellwether Bayou. Website development was led by Sandra Ward. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for
3: listening to this episode of Asia Insight.